All right, good morning. It is good to see you all once again. Thank you for your prayers uh, for Jane and for me and for our family uh, during the time away on our uh, trip. Uh, we are very conscious of the Lord's uh, upholding and strength uh, during a time of uh, bereavement, um, but it's good and, uh, to be back uh, here with you again this morning. If you turn to your bulletins, you will see there are a number of announcements uh, this morning. First of all, following morning service, we will be joining together downstairs for a fellowship meal. And uh, so it's our second uh, Sunday of the month, so fellowship meal after morning service. And then uh, next, we plan to visit with our community uh, next Saturday morning, December 16th, from 11 a.m. to noon. Uh, we'll be taking out uh, an Advent message, Christ has come incarnate, and uh, we'll deliver that with an invitation uh, targeted to the morning service on December 24th. And so if you're able to join us in this church evangelistic activity, then if you'd please gather at the building at 10.30 for prayer, and then we will go out together, Lord willing, at 11 o'clock. Thirdly, this morning, uh, our next uh, church members' meeting will be held, Lord willing, immediately following the evening service next Sunday evening, December 17, 2023. Agendas for this meeting have been sent out to members by email. If you have not received it, then please let me know. We will get that uh, fixed. Um, but as far as I'm aware, every uh, member should have received that. Uh, regular attendees of our congregation are welcome to attend this meeting as observers. And then a couple of more announcements not uh, printed on the bulletin. Um, uh, fourthly, uh, our church directory for 2024 is in uh, process of being put together. Um, and the latest draft is out on the table in the foyer uh, this morning. Uh, if you would uh, take time before you leave to check your entry uh, for you and your family. Um, I'm sure Don and Sean will probably tell me how many years we have been doing this now. Um, but somehow, someway, um, one date usually slips through somehow. So this is our one opportunity once a year uh, to check everything. We do our best to check everything. But if you could check your family's data, that is the very best way to make sure everything's current, up-to-date, address, email addresses, telephone numbers, um, birthdays, anniversaries. That means you get your card on the right day, right? Um, so uh, if, if you don't, then you may get a card at a very odd or different day. Sometimes the numbers get a little transposed or something. Um, but if you would help us by checking that data and then just uh, putting a tick by it to say you've done it, uh, that will help us. Our plan is to have it already printed for distribution uh, first week of January. So um, uh, we've got time, but uh, if you could do that uh, today, that would be very helpful. And then uh, finally, um, we're a little behind with this uh, due to, I think, uh, my absence. Uh, table talk for the month of December uh, is available out on the foyer. Um, so if you use Table Talk regularly and you've been missing it and wondering where it is, uh, it was sitting uh, in uh, some mail that got delivered to my doorstep, um, but uh, I wasn't there and so forth. Um, so apologies if you've been missing it, but it's here today. 
So uh, please take it. It's out in the, uh, in the foyer table talk for the month of December. So with all of those announcements made, let us now prepare our hearts to worship God. The call to worship this morning comes from the prophecy of Isaiah and chapter 42. Isaiah 42 and verses 1 through 9. Let us hear God's Word. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth, and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord. That is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. Amen. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. And now please take up your hymnals, first of all, to hymn number 162. Hymn number 162, Hark the Glad Sound, the Savior Comes. We will be singing a cappella this morning, so if you would please rise if you are able. 162, to the praise of God.
Amen. Please be seated. And now let us come to God in prayer. Let us all pray. Almighty God, glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come and bow down before you again this morning. We come to worship you, the one true and living God. As your word declares, there are no other gods beside you. You yourself say in the perfection of your knowledge, your knowledge of all things, that you know of no other God. All the other gods of this world are but false idols, vain imaginations of men. And so it is, O Lord, we come to worship you to give you that which is your due and your right, giving to you the glory and the praise and the honor of which you alone are worthy. We come to glory in all that you have done, even in your great works of creation and providence and supremely in your great work of salvation. We are glad to read and hear, as we have done in our call to worship, of your Son, the Lord Jesus, your chosen servant, the one in whom your soul delights, the one upon whom you placed your spirit, even without measure, that he might be enabled as the incarnate Son of God to fulfill all righteousness in the place of his people to be that great probation keeper and then to lay down his life a ransom for many to pay that penalty in full that was due we are thankful O lord for the shedding of the blood of our savior jesus christ we thank you for the efficacy of that blood that it atoned for sin that it's enabled the wrath of God to be turned aside from sinners, that it removed sin from all those who trust in the Lord Jesus as far as the east is from the west. And so we rejoice this morning as those who profess your great name as God our Savior, who have come to know your great salvation being united to Christ by faith. We are thankful for the great reality of the forgiveness of our sins. And so in the knowledge of it, O Lord, we come to confess our sins, knowing that as we do so, as we confess sins of word and thought and deed, as we do so by your enabling, knowing a true repentance for them. We know that there is forgiveness, full and free, in Jesus Christ the Lord. And so, our God, we are thankful for that fresh cleansing this morning, that we can come with clean consciences, even as we enter the holy presence of God. 
Our Father, we come with our thanksgiving. We are thankful for your answers to our prayers day by day. We thank you for providing for all of our needs, temporal and spiritual. We thank you for giving each day our daily bread. We are thankful, O Lord, for your sustaining grace, even as we walk the pilgrim way. We are thankful for watching over all of our goings out and our comings in, even protecting us, hedging us in, O Lord, even from the many dangers, even from the many temptations of the evil one, even from the many difficulties that we encounter on this narrow and upward road that leads to life. We give you thanks for your goodness and mercy to us, even again this day. And then, our Father, we come with our prayers of petition and intercession. We come to pray for this world in all of its need. We think of those particular troubled spots of which we hear much in the news at the present time. We think of the lands of the Middle East and the conflict there. We pray for all those who are caught up in these events, those who are caught up directly in the conflict, those who are responsible both militarily and civilly for making decisions, those countries in that region, those further afield, even our own country. We pray that you would be with each one that they might seek to make wise and just decisions. We pray that you would comfort those who mourn. We pray that you would comfort those whose loved ones are still held hostage. We pray for those, O oh Lord, who grieve, are bereaved, are perplexed. Lord, you know that circumstance that for many, many, many years have seemed beyond the ability of men to resolve. Lord, have mercy, we pray. And we ask that even beyond the immediate conflict, beyond the immediate physical circumstances, we pray in the midst of these difficulties that are beyond us, that you would work purposes of grace, that you would bring into hearts that are full of hatred, that you would bring, O oh Lord, the great grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, these things are beyond us, but they are not beyond you. And so we pray that you might bring many trophies of grace, even from the many lands around of the Middle East, where there may be great religion, O oh Lord, in communities, and yet no knowledge of the truth. Even amongst your ancient people, O oh Lord, we pray that you might open their eyes to the servant that you have already sent, the Messiah, Yeshua, the great Savior of his people. And grant them, O oh Lord, to rejoice that he came to save Jew and Gentile alike, that they might be united in that one great olive tree, Branches natural and branches grafted in. Have mercy, we pray, O Lord. And then, our Father, we do pray for the land of the Ukraine and the continuing conflict there, even as winter has come upon those lands and the difficulty, O Lord, the cold for those on the front lines in the battle 
For those, O oh Lord, in cities where they are deprived of heat and utility, Lord, have mercy, we pray. Restrain the hands of evil men. Grant relief to those who suffer, we pray. Father, then we pray for our own nation. We pray for our leaders, even as your word commands us to do. Even as we pray for leaders across the globe, we pray for our own leaders. We pray for each branch, for each level of government. We pray for our president and his administration. We pray for our Congress. We pray for our judiciary. Lord, in days of difficulty, in days of division and clamor, even in days, O oh Lord, as we come to another election cycle, Lord, we pray that you might grant us leaders who have a measure of civic righteousness, even under common grace, that those things, O oh Lord, that are enacted, administered, ruled in our courts, might be according to your righteousness and justice. Have mercy upon them and have mercy upon us, we pray. And then, our Father, we do pray for our own congregation. We remember those who cannot be with us today, those who are sick, even those many families through whom this virus is going and bringing them down, afflicting them. We pray that you might grant them relief. And even today, with little strength, O Lord, we pray that you might turn their hearts and minds to yourself, even if, as they may be able to watch through the live stream, we pray that you would encourage them through the preaching of your word and knowing that the saints pray for them and that you are a God who is pleased to hear and answer prayer. Lord, we think in particular again of baby Charlotte and pray for her. We thank you for your answers to our prayers in recent days as well as for the many weeks and months for whom we have, during which we have prayed for this little one. But we would pray on it, O Lord. We ask for the particular needs that uh, she might be able to come off this uh, breathing apparatus that helps and so that she might be considered and placed on the list for transplant. Lord, you are in control of all these things. We pray that you would sustain this little one and that you would grants the necessary strength and the necessary change that these things may take place. We pray for Mark and Nicole and the other children, even as they watch on, as they've watched on for many months now. Help and sustain them, we pray. Meet their needs. Encourage them. Know, let them know, O oh Lord, that you are a God who will neither leave nor forsake them. Hedge them about, O oh Lord. Grant them to know the great peace of God that passes all understanding. Father, we remember those who are away from us, even in great distance. We remember our brother Wesley and his deployment. And even as the weeks and months pass, we thank you for keeping him safe alongside all of those with whom he serves. We pray again that you might be his sustaining portion today. We pray that you would help him to be a bright light, a good witness and testimony of a child of God in the midst of the circumstances, the place that you have located him. 
Grant him encouragement, O Lord, even in the midst, perhaps, of loneliness and the midst of separation. Grant him to know that you are always with him. Be with his family, we pray. Help and sustain them. We pray that you might make these weeks, O Lord, when uh, family time is particularly poignant in our season, Thanksgiving and Christmas, that you would be with each one, with our brother and his family and with all those who serve and are deployed at this time. We are thankful for them and the service that they give for the good of this nation and many others. Be with them and help them, we pray. And so, Father, you see all of our needs. You see all of our hearts. All is laid bare before you. Come and minister to us again your mercy and your grace, even as we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. The consecutive reading of God's Word in the New Testament this morning, we turn to Luke's Gospel and to chapter 1. In the Lord's providence, we come to this particular section of Holy Scripture as we come to the time of Advent. And so we turn to Luke chapter 1, and this morning we are going to read from verse 1 through verse 25. So the Gospel of Luke chapter 1, and reading verses 1 through 25. Would you please rise, if you are able, for the reading of God's holy word. Luke 1 at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, 
And he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them, and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Amen. And thus far God's holy word. Please be seated. And now again, let us turn to God in prayer. Let us all pray. Our Father in heaven, we come to ask for help, even as we acknowledge our total dependence upon you and the ministry of your Spirit, if we are to hear and we are to heed the word that you speak to us. Father, we ask that you would pity us in all of our weakness that you'd have mercy upon us in all of our distractions, and that you would come, even in the power of your Spirit, to convert sinners, to bring life to the dead, and to build up your saints in their most holy faith. Grant us, O Lord, in this central act of our worship, to hear and to heed all that you would say to us. We ask this in your Son's name. Amen. Please now turn in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews and chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10 and reading verses 19 through 25. The letter to the Hebrews, chapter 10, and commencing to read at verse 19. Again, please give your careful attention. This is the word of God. Hebrews 10 at verse 19. 
Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high, a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Amen. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our God abides forever. Why is so much of the Bible devoted to doctrine? This is the question with which we began the sermon of some weeks ago as we began the exposition of this text. I ask it again this morning. Why is so much of the Bible devoted to doctrine? That is, to statements regarding what we are to know and what we are to believe. The answer to that question is because doctrine, truth, Statements that we are to know and believe have consequences. And the consequences of these truths are utterly definitive for us. Truth is of central importance. And it is definitive for our salvation as believers. And so our manner of living as those who profess to be saved, those who profess to be disciples of Jesus Christ, united to him by faith, our manner of living, the way in which we live, the Christian life, must be consistent with that truth, with the faith that we profess. And so as we come back to this section of Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, we find again the author here is moving from doctrine to application. He tells believers here that what we believe, what we profess, must transfer into our life and into our action. We're going to think about three things as we return to this text this morning. First of all, by way of review, worshipping and truthful life revisited. That was the focus of our sermon the last time we were in this passage. But then secondly, we will move on to consider a, live, a loving community. And then thirdly, abiding graces. 
So worshiping and truthful life, revisited. A loving community and abiding graces. So first of all then, worshiping and truthful life, revisited. Verses 19 through 23. Verses 19 through 21 summarize the great doctrinal sections of the book of Hebrews. They do so by identifying two things that believers have because of the person and work of Jesus Christ. First of all, believers have access to God through Jesus Christ, verses 19 and 20. And then secondly, believers have a great priest over the house of God, verse 21. Now, because of the great possessions that Christians have in Christ, we have an obligation, as Paul would put it, to live in a certain way. The author of Hebrews would concur with that. He sets out here a threefold manner of life, way of life, as the believer's reasonable response, that which is appropriate as those who are the beneficiaries of Christ's saving ministry. Three times in verses 23 through 25, the author says, let us. He sees this as something that he exhorts the whole community of the professing people of God to. Together, these exhortations present a pattern for our lives as believers. A pattern that every believer, that's you and me, here this morning, a pattern that every believer is to make his or her own. First of all, our Christian lives are to be a life of worship, verse 22, because we have confidence to approach God's throne, and because we have a great priest over the house of God, then let us, in fact, let us, in reality, draw near to God and worship him as he has commanded us. Worship is both our highest privilege and our most central duty as Christians. Secondly, in this pattern of life, Christians are also called to a life of truth, verse 23. We must hold firm to the gospel hope even in the midst of an unbelieving world. The word confession here means a public a doctrinal confession. And it is in this manner that we must uphold the truth of all that God has revealed concerning himself, his ways, who we are in his sight, how we are to be saved by the work of Christ. Unswerving devotion to Christ and his gospel is a matter of special importance here to the author of Hebrews. He takes up this great theme again here. He's determined to thwart any idea of compromise on the truth among his Christian readers. That reminded us last time, it reminds us again this morning, that nothing is more important than that which we believe. 
the truth that we profess. Because nothing so shapes the way that we live as that which we believe. So nothing is more important to the Christian life than the content of the faith that we say we believe. As it's put succinctly, theologically, orthodoxy, right belief, leads to orthopraxy, right living to the glory of God. Well, then that brings us in the second place this morning to a loving community, a loving community, verses 24 and 25. The third exhortation, the third letters here in our text is a summons to a life of loving community as the people of God, verses 24 and 25. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, Continued care for one another that finds an expression in love, good works, and the mutual encouragement that active participation in the gatherings of the community makes possible, end quote. That's what the author of the Hebrews is thinking about here and exhorting the believers to. Now, this is not an invitation for us to be, as one other commentator puts it, quote, judgmental busybodies, end quote, interfering constantly in others' lives, thinking that we know exactly how everything ought to be done. And if it's not done the way that we do it, then we should make it our mission in life to let everybody else know that and uh, to never give them a moment's peace until they agree with us and do as we do. The author is not thinking about those kinds of things. Perhaps even as I say those things, you might have a certain person in mind who you have come across. Uh, we trust it was not ourselves, though often we may have been guilty of that ourselves, of being judgmental busybodies in the lives of others. What's the outcome of such interference, intrusion? Well, it simply makes the lives of other believers a burden, doesn't it? Um, we try to be loving, even to such brethren, um, but it's truly a burden, isn't it? If somebody says simply their interest is being a judgmental busybody. They just want to tell you what you're doing wrong. And uh, say, you really, you know, you, you, you've got to do this. That's not what he's thinking about here. But on the other hand, he is not just simply saying, you know, everybody just do as they please. Um, it doesn't matter. You know, if you want to do that, that's okay. And if somebody else wants to do something different, that's okay too. What he is thinking of here requires that we take a lively interest in the lives of other believers around us, particularly in the local church, though not exclusively, but certainly firstly and primarily, it is to be expressed there. Notice what the author says here. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good work. very deliberate language, isn't it? We are to think. We even might use the word study. Um, how we are to do that. 
to the great glory of God and to the great benefit of our brethren. To think of ways in which this could be done. Let us consider. And then to take those thoughts and plans and considerations and put them into action. Study, consideration, and implementation. Very practical, isn't it? Those things that motivate one another to greater godly living. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. Now, one thing this means, brethren, is that no Christian can be an individualist. An individualist. To use the language of Scripture, we are called to be our brother's keeper. We must give thought, according to this text, to how we can be of help to other believers in their Christian lives. We're not called to be a busybody, but we are called to be a helper, to be our brother's keeper. From the perspective of our responsibility, therefore we must consider the impact of our actions on others. We may not be that interfering busybody, but we can still be some hindrance to others rather than a helper. That's what Paul had in mind, wasn't it? When he wrote to the Romans and was again exhorting them to consider the impact of their actions on the faith of others. How is the way that you live stirring up others to love and good works or not to love and good works? How are you hindering them. Paul wrote at some length, Romans 14, verses 13 through 16, on that very topic. Particularly as he thought of those who are weaker in the faith. He said, to what extent are we thinking of restraining or even putting to one side our personal freedoms and liberties that are rightly ours for the sake of other brethren, to stir them up to greater love and good works. Again, in the context back of Hebrews chapter 10, this provides an excellent opportunity to think about, indeed, why is it that we gather together regularly? Well, of course, we come to worship God. He's commanded us to do that, of course. But there's also this aspect to our gathering, that it gives the opportunity in the fellowship of the saints for us to be that helper, not just when we formally gather together, but certainly whilst we do formally gather together. Let me ask you, did you think about that? Did I think about that? As we were thinking about coming together this Lord's Day, yes, we're coming to, first and foremost, worship God. That is the central, primary purpose of our gathering. But even as we do so, do we think even just our very presence here in that activity can be used of God to stir up others to greater love and good work? That's what the author to the Hebrews is thinking about here. 
And to put it very practically and very simply and very plainly, here is one good reason. It's not the only reason by any means. But here is one good reason for every believer to be gathered with the saints each and every Lord's day. And to not forsake it. As clearly there was the danger already happening in the original hearers of this epistle. Why would he say do not neglect to do it? If there's not danger at least. And perhaps some already doing that very thing. We are to be here. And in the context here, we are to be here to be of benefit to others, encouraging them, taking a care that they too are standing firm by the grace of God and the work of the Spirit, even as the day of the Lord approaches. Now, as we look at the language here, and particularly the verbs in these verses, um, it offers us a very practical instruction, a primer as we might call it, on how to be a good and helpful member of the church. Because sometimes people say, well, okay, I, I get the principle, um, but, but what exactly should I be doing? How am I supposed to be that? Um, well, the text helps us here. Um, of course, we always have to remember that the church is filled with yet imperfect believers, yet still sinners, not perfected in glory. And so each and every one of us still struggles in the Christian life to, to plod forward one step after another, finding it much more easy to be the interfering busybody in the congregation, perhaps, or to be the one who, um, well, you know, I've got it all down. And uh, if you haven't, well, you just need to get with the program because this is how it ought to be. Or perhaps even to say, you know what, I acknowledge you as a believer, but you know what, if you don't agree with me on this, you know, that's, that's really the definition of our fellowship here. Not our union in Christ, but something else. That's the issue Paul was having to address, wasn't it, amongst the strong and the weak in the book of Romans. It wasn't union with their living Savior that was front and center. It was all the arguments about whether you eat, made meat or not, or all of the other not unimportant things, but certainly not central things. And against that backdrop, whether we're in the first century in Rome or whether the scattered uh, believers to whom the author of Hebrews wrote, uh, or whether we think of it in our own day and generation. Um, it's always the same, isn't it? Uh, the community of the professing people of God in this world is an imperfect community, where there's always many militant things to, to war against. Uh, this consideration of how to stir and, and provoke one another, if you like that older language of the uh, of the King James, to, to love and good works. But first of all, then, the author comes with this verb, consider, which has to do with our thinking. Sadly, and maybe we need to take a moment this morning to 
search our own hearts on this matter. We, it's not that we don't think. We perhaps think too much sometimes because we're thinking about ourselves primarily. We think, and we think a lot, of ourselves, our own concerns. But here the focus is thinking about others. It doesn't mean you should never think about yourself and um, how you ought to be growing in grace and knowledge of the truth. But here the focus is thinking about others. Is there someone in the fellowship who may be struggling spiritually? Are they discouraged? Do they need a, a Barnabas to come alongside, a son of encouragement? Perhaps they are plagued with doubt. They need someone to come alongside them and remind them again of the great truth, of the great doctrine of the Word of God. This is not about how you feel right now. It's about what God has done in His Son, Jesus Christ. Is there someone facing grave temptation and needing someone to come alongside and again to remind them of the great folly and of the great consequences of giving in to that sin, to help them to see what was going on even from the very beginning when Satan came into the garden and said, has God said? And to say, yes, God has truly said. This is sin. We had to flee from it. And we could multiply examples, couldn't we? of the various states and conditions of each of our hearts as we may come into the assembly of the saints week by week. Now, there's always a balance here. Again, I think we need to be careful. We're just not needlessly prying into people's lives out of some idle curiosity. But nevertheless, guarding our hearts against that, we should still give thought to our brethren around us, the circumstances in which they are, and to seek to help them. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, If we are not doing this, then we are nothing more than takers, consumers of religion, who are of little use for the eternal destiny of other people, end quote. Those are sobering words, aren't they? Do we come to church simply for what we can get out of it? And if we are satisfied and our needs are met, then we're good. I don't take time to consider how I might be of help by the grace of God, with the enabling of God's Spirit, to stir others up to love and good works. We need to think about that. And then secondly, we actually had to do something. Having thought, we had to do something. We had to stir up. The sense of the word here, the meaning is to incite or to provoke or to stimulate. So the way we live and talk and act should be, in that right sense of the word, provocative to other believers. It ought to have an impact on them. We should be reminding them of the great spiritual truths of the Bible. Because of what we say and because of how we are enabled to live consistently, never perfectly, 
but hopefully increasingly consistently with that truth. The result of our example and conversation and action should be that which stirs it up, excites it, provokes it in the lives of other believers. Let's ask ourselves a very practical question this morning. Is it true that the way in which we speak, the way in which we act, um, to put it in perhaps a very colloquial term of our own day, the way we handle ourselves, does that provoke others to take seriously what the Bible says and to desire greater, in a greater measure, to be stirred up to love and good works in the Christian life. Does what we say indeed express godly counsel? If necessary, does it go against the, the grain of worldly thinking and logic in order to press home the great truth of the Scripture? promises of God, the warnings of Holy Scripture? Does our behavior set a helpful model for other Christians, particularly for those who may be weaker in the faith, those who may be new Christians? One commentator concludes, quote, if not, you are not making the impact you should for Christ's work in the church, end quote. That comes home as a thunderbolt, doesn't it? I trust it does to your heart as it does to mine. If I don't speak, if I don't act in that way, then I'm not fulfilling the purpose for which Christ has called me into his kingdom. Now, this is not the only aspect of the calling of the Christian, but it's one aspect of it and not to be neglected. So we're to consider, we're to stir up, and we're, thirdly, we are to encourage one another. This requires us to come alongside other people with words and actions that will strengthen them in the Lord. This can be a challenging thing to do, can't it? Um, sometimes we simply want to shake hands, say, how are you? Hope they say, doing well, thank you for asking, and then we can move on. How often can we be guilty? I think of times in my own life when it's been this way. I've got many other things on my mind, many other things I need to do that day. Um, many pressing deadlines. And you ask that question and somebody says, well, actually, I'm not doing well. And I'd really appreciate talking with someone. Um, most of us with any maturity in the faith don't say, no, I don't have time for you. But if we're being honest, our heart sinks because we go, well, now this is going to cause me more difficulty in my day. So I've got all these other things to do. And if I stop now, and many times I don't think it's because we flat out don't want to encourage someone not to be helpful, but, you know, we all live busy lives. Perhaps we have far too much in our lives at times that we don't have time to, to fit these things in without clashes. The Word of God does not say to us, brethren, 
you know, do this when you have the time. You know, you get to this when you get to an age of retirement and you have more time available. Or you do this when you are a single person and you don't have the responsibilities of a family. Well, it doesn't say to you, you know, when uh, you, you're a Christian in the fellowship and you, you, you're given no other specific responsibilities in the congregation uh, that take up time and, uh, and rightly in their proper place. And we're called to do this, encourage one another. And encouraging one another is usually more than just a word here and there. The idea in the word is of bearing a load with others. Definitely means coming alongside, praying with them. It means coming alongside and listening. Sharing the burden. Think of somebody carrying a load and coming alongside and getting your shoulder underneath that. Just think of this recently as, um, as you know, I was back in the UK for a funeral. And uh, every time I see a casket borne on shoulders, I'm reminded of this. Um, typically, there's at least six guys. Sometimes there have to be eight, depending on the weight. Um, but, but can you imagine if it's just left to one or to two? Um, you see that in the very process. You may just picture this by way of an example. As the casket comes out of the vehicle, you know, two guys take the first bit of it and you know, then two more and two more, and, and they take the load. But what would it be like if that load was just left to the first two guys, or even just one? I mean, it would be impossible, wouldn't it? That's the idea. That's the illustration. Coming alongside and getting your shoulder and knowing what it's like to have that weight and bearing that. Writer spoke of these kind of things earlier in his letter, Hebrews 3.13. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. There he's thinking in particular the Lord of uh, helping people to remain faithful to the truth, to the doctrine of the word of God. Coming alongside and encouraging someone to do that, helping them to do that. One commentator says, quote, We little consider how threatened each one of us is by sin, which is deceptive in its very character. But like climbers roped together on a steep mountain, like soldiers teamed together on a battlefield, we must keep track of one another. We must work together if we are to reach our objective safely, end quote. That's why the Christian cannot be an individualist. He has to be part of a community. Think of ascending a um, great mountain and being roped together so that if one slips, the others hold. Think of being on the battlefield. I um, heard this in a um, TV show very recently. Who's the most important person to you on the battlefield? The guy right next to you. He has your back. That's the idea here. Let's put it in those terms. Brethren, do we think of it that way? That we have each other's backs in this congregation? Do we? That's the picture. Come alongside. Encourage one another. 
one of the essential means by which Christ guides and protects his people is the active participation of other believers in that Christian's life. Could God do this without each and every one of us? Of course he could. He does not need us to do these things. But he is pleased in his wisdom to order his church, order the community of the people of God to this great end. And so he says the day of Christ is rapidly approaching. It will be a day of judgment for all who fall away. And so we are to be aware of that, to remember that, to soberly reflect on that, not merely for ourselves, which we ought to, but also for our brothers and sisters, and be willing to do these very things. You want to be your brother's keeper? You want to be that helpful um, member of the local church? You want to consider, to stir up, to encourage? That's what it means. The day of the Lord's return is fast approaching. Let us not just be concerned that we find ourselves ready and waiting, that we be equally concerned for that for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, then thirdly, uh, we come to abiding graces in verses 22 through 25, abiding graces. To use Francis Schaeffer's great uh, phrase that many of you may know, how should we then live? If we are those professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, how then should we live? As Schaefer wrote in his book. The author to the Hebrews would answer that question in the light of the believer's great possessions in Christ, who has opened the way to heaven and ministers to us as heavenly high priest forever. And so this passage that we have in front of us this morning is a passage that we can profitably use to check ourselves against from time to time, both individually as a professing believer and as a church, as a, a local church, a community here of believers who walk together. One commentator very helpfully observes the three exhortations in this passage correspond to the great triad of the Christian life set forth by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. In 1 Corinthians 13, 13, Paul writes, Now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. And these three abiding graces coincide with the three exhortations that we see here in Hebrews 10, verses 20 through, 22 through 25. First comes faith, since faith secures for us a relationship with God. Hebrews 10, verse 22. Christians often ask, you may ask this morning, how to have a closer relationship with God? The answer is by faith. God has opened the way. He accepts you in and through his son, Jesus Christ. He accepts you into this loving, reconciled relationship because of Jesus Christ. What are you to do? You are to receive and rest in that great, blessed reality. You are to believe and rest in the promise, to trust him, 
to trust his word. That's why we are to give ourselves to the scriptures, why we spend so much time in the scriptures as Christians. Because it's teaching, it's truth, it's claims, it's promises, it's warnings, it's exhortations. It teaches who God is, what he has done, and how we might rightly and must rightly respond with that whole-hearted, trusting belief in what God has said. It's that kind of faith in Christ that fills the heart of the Christian. Faith, of course, has to start with the mind, doesn't it? It has to be that which we understand of this truth. But what the mind receives must be embraced by the heart. It cannot be some mere cold intellectual fact. It is the truth to be embraced by the heart. Only then will we know that growing relationship with the Lord and an ability to worship him in spirit and truth. Secondly, Paul talks about hope. The Christian lives by hope drawing strength and stability from its anchor in the stormy seas of life. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. One commentator puts it like this. He says, quote, The Christian is a man who lives with his heavenly destiny ever in view. His outlook is not bounded by the present life and the present world. He sees that which is and that which is to come in their true proportions and in their proper perspective. The center of gravity of his consciousness lies not in the present but in the future. Hope, not possession, is that which gives tone and color to his life. His is the frame of mind or the heir who knows himself entitled to large treasures upon which he will enter at a definite point of time. End quote. The life of the Christian is a life of hope. Of those things certainly promised, and even having begun to enter into them, but not yet fully received and realized. Let us hold fast then the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Our gospel hope, brethren, this morning is certified by the oath-bound promise of the God of heaven, the seal of which is affixed in heaven, even by the nail-scarred hand of the Lord Jesus himself. That's what the Hereator of the Hebrews has already made clear to us, Hebrews 6, 19 through 20. And if we hold fast to those truths, then we will then possess a hope that is an anchor for our very souls. Do you often feel you need an anchor somewhere in your life at this time? In all of the uncertainties of this life, whether it's in your individual life, whether it's in your family, whether it's in the local community, whether it's in the nation, whether it's on the international stage. 
What anchor will hold our souls? It's this anchor of hope in and through Jesus Christ. So faith brings us into relationship with God for life of worship, whilst hope anchors us unswervingly to a future of unimaginable blessings. And then thirdly and lastly comes love. Verses 24 and 25. Stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, encouraging one another. There's a progression at work here, isn't there? First is faith, which unites us to Christ and brings us to God. The result of that faith is hope, which secures our hearts in the storms of this life. With hope, we no longer fear for ourselves, but are able to give loving encouragement to others. Hope, therefore, springs forth in love. The love of God that fills the hearts of all who hope in him. That's who and what you are this morning, Christian. One who's been granted the gift of faith, that's produced hope, that then springs forth in love. Love to God first, for sure. In the context of focus of what we're thinking about here, love for the brethren. We certainly love because God first loved us. John makes that clear, 1 John 4, verse 19. But then he adds something very, very important and very, very practical. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Those are sobering words, aren't they? Because we're not always easy to love this side of glory. Um, we're not easy for others to love. And we often find that others are not so easy to love. But that's not the issue here. God never says in his word, you're just to love those who are easy to love. Or you are to love those that you find easy to love. We love because God first loved us, but whoever loves God must also love his brother. That's what John says, 1 John 4, verse 21. How long are we to love our brother? Just for a moment? Just whilst we're together? On a Sunday, in the midweek? Verse 25 says, we are to encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. The day of Christ is fast approaching. It's hurtling, as we might say, toward us. We'll come either with the, our own death if our Lord does not return, or with the great second advent of Christ, the great culmination of all of history, both of which events usher Believers into the presence of Christ. He says we are to love in the light of that. Not just for a moment, not just for a day, not just for a week. But in the light of that which is to come all of those days. And even into eternity. As we close, how then should we live? Francis Schaeffer asks. If we want to please God. We grow in grace. We seek to be those helpers to others. 
we let this great agenda of the Apostle Paul, faith, hope, and love, define the pattern of our lives as Christians, even for however much time is given us to live on this earth. These things are to be our priorities, our brethren, faith, hope, and love. May God so help us. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, there is much here which challenges our hearts. We fall so far short. We fail so frequently. And yet you come again and again in your mercy and your grace. You lift us up. You pour in the oil and the wine of your gospel. You set us on our feet and you enable us again to walk, to plod in the Christian way. Lord, as we've thought very much this morning about practical things of the Christian life, we pray that you would help us. Deliver us from our self-centeredness, that we think so much about ourselves and uh, what we desire and what would be best for us. Help us to be truly our brother's keeper, not to be an interfering busybody, but to be one who considers, who thinks, who designs and implements action for the benefit of our brethren. Help us to stir them up. Help us to encourage them to come alongside, to take that load. Father, we need your help. We cannot do it by simply pulling ourselves up by the bootstraps and uh, having motivational talks, as it were, to stimulate us to these things. You must come and help us by your Spirit, even as the great applier of the benefits of the work of Christ. Help us, we pray, even as we ask in his name. Amen. We turn again to our hymnals, to hymn number 285. Hymn number 285, Blessed Be the Tie That Binds. We're going to sing it to the second tune. So 285, please rise to sing if you are able.
give thanks for the food they're about to receive our fellowship meal. So let's all pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the food of your word, which nourishes our souls. We also give thanks now for the physical food that you've provided for our bodies. We are thankful for the hands that have prepared it. We acknowledge that ultimately all good gifts, including this food, has come from you. And so we pray that you would bless it to us and bless our conversation. May we implement the things that we have thought about this morning. May we consider and may we provoke and may we stir up and may we encourage one another even as we eat this meal together. We ask in Christ's name, amen. People of God, now receive the blessing of God Almighty, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Go in the Lord's mercy and peace. <laughs>